Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Participant readings are always a lit fest treat. This year is no different. Listen in on this second of three installations of the LitFest Participants Reading. A spectrum of work showcases the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community of writers. Here's an old love poem to get us started tonight. This is an old poem. Um, It's called At Long Last We Meet. Somewhat forlorn... I could imagine your kiss and the strange, seemingly endless series of circumstances that have served to separate me from it. But last night, in a dream, I kissed Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Perhaps that connects me to you somehow. Welcome, everybody. Um, Welcome to the penultimate participant reading. I believe it is. It's the the penultimate Lit Fest participant reading. Um, uh, uh, The first participant reading was uh, um, last, last Sunday, I believe. And it was... An extraordinary reading, if any of you were here to catch it. It was, it was all women readers, and uh, it was, uh, well, the quality was pretty high. I mean, we're we're going to have to uh, really step up our game tonight to compete with them. Yeah. Just kidding. There's, it's not a competition. You're not competing against each other. So just, uh, just to be clear... Um, I think uh, we're not we we are not competing with the readers from the uh, previous uh, participant reading. We are, however, competing with the readers from the next participant reading. So, um, bring your A game tonight. Uh, we have we have a we have a potpourri of genre for you tonight. We have uh, memoirists, we have uh, fiction writers, we have poets. Um, we've got a great slate of readers and. Um, I want to get us started. Um, our first reader of the evening, I believe, is a fiction writer. And uh, I guess you could call her a local favorite. Um, Kate Barrett is a native Coloradan. And she generally writes about places nobody likes, such as the Midwest and Wyoming. Please... Please give a big hand for our first reader of the night, Miss Kate Barrett. I only stand, I don't sit. Okay, um, well, this is a Midwest one. Um, and it's a nod to the noir class here, so um, uh, snaps to that one. Um, it's called $30, and basically um, I'll read just two short sections. 
what you need to know for this first one is that there, there are two characters. Um, one is named Delilah. She's young, maybe 13. Um, she's the narrator. And then the second one is Bo Jean, and this is their, um, their meeting, and he's, he's an older guy. Um, Bo Jean doesn't have a lot except his mama's and his grandmama's and his great-grandmama's wisdom. He said they all passed it on to him when his mama kept having boys, dirty boys, mud-slinging boys, and he was the best of a bad situation. I got a feminine sensibility, he said to me. I guess that's right. He's sort of skinny like a woman and has long hands that are soft like a woman's, but he also has a short curly beard. He's so black his eye whites pop out, and he has even blacker spots on his face and arms. He says he worked the trains when the motherfucking Native Americans still shot arrows at them, and God bless motherfucking Native Americans for their divine sensibilities, but ain't it a shame they're all dirty drunks now. <laughs> that would make him 100 years old, so I don't believe it, plus he lies a lot. I don't mind because he believes his lies like truth, and he never lied about the important stuff. I rolled to the bottom of the hill, and there he was in the tunnel under the bridge. So, the, you know, she's, she's come to this spot that she likes. I knew somebody had found my spot before I saw him because the tunnel was full up with his humming. He called it soul humming for his babies, all the hundreds of babies out there, who he never had and nobody else ever had. People who died were babies, too, floating up there in the in-between place. I tried to peek around the corner into the tunnel without making any sound, but he saw me. Come here, girl, that's what he called me, just girl, never Delilah. Come here and listen to these acoustics. I didn't know what acoustics were, and I didn't really want to find out, but he'd seen me, and the only place to run was out to the train yard. Pops told me people get cut in half in the train yard, so I couldn't do that. I went into the tunnel with him. Girl, you have found the Cathedral of Eureka, did you know? These here are the motherfucking finest walls for singing in America. Not even Catholics in Europe could make a more beautiful hall. <laughs> Come on now, hum with me. Bojean put his palms up and closed his eyes to start, but I kept mine open. Frogs live in there because the tunnel sends rainwater to wherever rainwater is supposed to go, so there's always puddles they can kick around in and drops of water dripping from the ceiling. It smells a little like piss in a creek bed, too. Then Bojean hummed, and I've never been in a church or anything, but that must be what it sounds like, all deep and sad, but also glad, sort of, and sleepy. It sounded like a hundred of him singing because of the echoes, plus the trains in the yard squealed and bumped together, making like giant church ladies saying amen. Um, so I'll just, one more section. And basically what happens is that this guy has Delilah uh, running these errands, um, delivering questionably illegal substances. <laughs> so this is right after she, she does the first one. Um, and he pays her for it. Bojean gave me $30 out of the brown suitcase. I never had $30 before. I didn't even know what $30 meant. So first thing, I went to the gas station. I bought one of the big bottles of Coke and as much candy as I could fit in my arms, and that still didn't equal $30. I went back and gathered up some more stuff, caramel corn and beef jerky and a bunch of packets of gum, and that about did it. I didn't think about what I'd do with everything until I was halfway home, and I realized I couldn't take it there. So I sat down on the curb and ate it. 
All the chocolate had already melted, so I licked that stuff out of the wrapper. I drank all the Coke. By the time I got to the popcorn, I was so full it could hardly fit. I finished the bag and sat there trying not to be full anymore. Then I stood up and barfed everything out right there in the road. (laughs) So that's what $30 feels like inside you. Thank you, Kate. That was really great. <laughs> I have made that attempt. Um, I'm, I didn't introduce myself. I'm, I'm J. Diego Fry. I'll be your um, moderator tonight. Um, our next reader is um, a fine poet, a poet who I always enjoy hearing and always enjoy introducing. Um, she has uh, recently uh, had the uh, distinction of running the uh, Poetry Out Loud contest um, from stem to stern for, uh, for the Denver, for the Colorado Finals. Um, and she did a fine job at it. Um, uh, much admiration for that. Andrea Doré um, sent me a few interesting tidbits about herself that... Uh, I want to run through. She was named Cook of the Week by the Colorado Springs Gazette for her Elk Stroganoff. (laughs) Although there's a typo in here. It says Elf Stroganoff. (laughs) Uh, And apparently uh, Colorado Springs Gazette uh, discontinued the uh, Cook of the Week feature the following week. (laughs) Maybe they made the same typo. Um, She once camped across America with her dog, Daisy. Uh, She claims to be Rosemary's baby. And she is also um, one of our uh, uh, book project participants we'll be reading tonight. Um, And I believe she's going to be reading a piece from that, correct? Please, warm welcome for Miss Andrea Doré. Thank you, J.D. (laughs) My mother's name really is Rosemary. (laughs) I am a member, as J.D. said, of the Lighthouse Book Project, and there are lots of these brochures around, and I highly recommend the book project, and I would encourage all of you to take a look at it if you're interested in working on a book-length project. I had the privilege and fun of being in the advanced memoir workshop this week with Robin Hemley with numerous memoirs from Lighthouse. And I will be reading a piece from that work in progress, which has generously been labeled as nonlinear. And this piece was actually written in Richard Froud's hybrid and experimental class. And That reminds me that it is time to nominate instructors for the Beacon Award. And the Lighthouse Beacon Award is awarded to instructors who have touched us and our writing in a way that we would like to honor. So you can find information on the website, or you can ask me and I will point you in that direction. Or as always, with everything in the Lighthouse universe, you can ask Kate Barrett. And she will point you in the right direction. So, this is a piece from that work in progress. 
and it's called triptych. The coyotes have come into the house from the green belt. I have asked him to fix the screen, and he says that he does, but they are sitting at the threshold of the bedroom again. They do not approach further. Perhaps they see the sign, privado, painted on a Spanish tile and tacked to the door. Or perhaps they simply want to be ready if the pack should call. Still, they are sitting here, quiet. But the owl, the owl is inside the room with us, perched high on the wall between the glassed-in frames with butterflies pinned carefully inside, butterflies of delicate yellow and white, purple tinged with black, blue pulses of evanescence. And this owl is unusual only because tonight we have watched Imagining Argentina. And in this film, this bird connects the souls of the living and the dead. And I wonder, does the owl know the butterflies are dead? We've taken off our shirts and washed them in the ceramic basin of the fountain on the patio. Thick, shiny, cerulean glaze winking through the water in the moonlight. I will only know that we have done this when I see our clothing hanging on the wooden chairs in the dawn, mine, indigo, and sleeveless, because we face to the west, and it is summer, and the walls of the house hold the heat well into the night. He tells me three. When I ask him how many people he has killed, three. He has killed a man with a pistol in the anus, and I try to imagine how this came about and what this looks like. A woman he shot in the head, but I am not sure if this is from the back or from the front. The third, or perhaps she is the second, is also a woman, and I sense that she is in an alley darkened cobblestones, and although neither he nor I can see her clearly, these are all bad persons. When I will ask him about this in the morning, as we collect stiff, dry shirts that I don't remember shedding, he will say, you did not hear me tell you this. A shaft of light beams from the top of my head an opaque expanse of luminosity, strong and unwavering and only fading to translucence at the edges. Softest green outlines the rounds of my body, a blend of pure yellow and clear blue, and this band is not as wide or as dense, and it hugs tight to my skin between my fingers and my toes and under my chin and hairline. I lie still and look up to the ceiling, try not to disturb him. He will say, you don't. But I know that he must rise to some level of consciousness to follow me as I move, to pull me to him, and to clasp my hands and wind my arms with his. He will not let me go and we will awaken with each other's breath. 
in our faces. His grandfather has told him that he must always sleep with his heart on top. But tonight he does not. He has turned to the left, and his heart has fallen to the bed, where it does not leave a stain on the sheets. Thank you. Thanks, Andrea. That was great. That was really good. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned that we should um, nominate uh, people for the Beacon Award uh, who have touched us. Um, what about if we wanted to nominate people who haven't touched us yet? I haven't found that to be true. Okay. <laughs> um, our next um, reader is a Colorado native. Um, Much like uh, uh, our first two readers. You're from Colorado. Kelly Thompson is a memoirist. Um, She uh, was born and grew up in Colorado uh, and uh, has uh, lived in other parts of the the country. She relocated to California, uh, kidnapped a firefighter, and took him to Alaska. And apparently has now dragged him back to Colorado because she's... uh, been living here for several years and uh, has been attending lighthouse classes uh, and is also a member of the uh, the book project and I believe she's going to read to us from her memoir in progress if I'm not mistaken please welcome Kelly Thompson hi uh, this is a piece from my the memoir that I'm working on, and um, it's called Oh Darling Girl. It reveals the story of addiction in a brighter light, I hope, than other memoirs. It uncovers the roots, the tangled strands of DNA that we all come from to discover not just a legacy of alcoholism and violence, but the even stronger legacy of love. Uh, this particular piece is... Um, Imagined as it must have been or might have been by the narrator. Um, It's from one of the um, strands, so to speak, that weaves throughout the memoir. Well, my brother Riley and a bunch of his boys were down there to Willigan's general store one day, up to no good, I reckon, my grandma might begin. I'd heard the story many times. Riley Decker and I, it would turn out, had something in common, something burned into our DNA, or you might call it fate. The way Grandma tells it, Riley Decker was unfairly imprisoned, but a new version of the story surfaces. A long-lost cousin, great-grandchild to Riley, tells me where to find a transcript documenting his appeal from prison to the state of Kentucky. As I read, the gift of conjure Grandma gave me takes over, and I am there on Willigan's porch. I imagine myself not too close, but near enough one of the old coots sitting there to see the figure he's whittling as a whistle. I remember one that Pa, my grandfather, made in the shape of a bird. I get quiet, lean back. 
The rough-hewn wood scratches my shoulder blades through the cotton gingham dress I fancy a girl might wear back then. The voices rise and fall, regular-like at first, just men being men, an occasional guffaw, someone calling out to the store tender, bring more whiskey. Glasses clink, chairs scrape against the floor. They are playing cards, maybe poker. Come on, deal, Riley. What are you waiting on, John Henry? Smoke wafts out the door, rolling tobacco raw and shaded with other Saturday night smells. The sweat of men after a long day's work, the tang of sassafras tea. The April scent of coffee tree mingles with sweet Betty's. The all-spice aroma of flowers a girl might pinch off and crush in a hanky to pin on her dress. The pale porch planks, worn smooth, cool my bare legs. As the afternoon wears on, dappling light blinking through the leaves of the ancient buttonball tree, the voices deepen, get rough and loud, then louder. Rounds of whiskey are called for, bootleg, it's a dry county and pour it all around before glasses are abandoned. Riley tosses his head back and swigs straight from the bottle. Arguments erupt over hands dealt wrong, then settle down, only to erupt again. Aaron Scott drinks as fast as Riley. Whiskey is exchanged in place of cash, sometimes tobacco. A winning hand or a losing one, there's a reason to drink. In the midst of one or the other, John Riley's voice gets mean. Bastard, he says to Jim Carroll, who just raised him one and spread out his cards to show a full house. That's my cousin you're talking at. His chair scrapes the floor and Aaron Scott gets to his feet, pulls a pocket knife. Shoot, everyone knows that boy's mama, Riley says. Can't say we ever met his pa, though, have we? Scott lunges, and Riley jumps up just as fast, pulls a hunting knife out from under his pant leg and out of his boot. Jim Carroll and the others are faster, break Riley and Scott up, get them to set. Come on, someone urges. Deal another hand. You boys settle down. Riley, what's got into you? I was only just in. Riley smiles at Scott and slips the Bowie knife back inside its holster, down his boot, He's an imposing man, maybe the tallest in the entire county of Grayson, a bit stringy, long-boned, has a rangy look, and handsome. That ain't funny. Scott puts the pocket knife down for the moment. Eventually, old Willigan himself chases the group of men out of the store. Their heavy boots, the grime on their britches as they clump past me in my hiding spot, makes the skin on my arms prickle. I finger the lumpy whistle the old coot gave me earlier as he headed out for supper. Watch my ancestor as he falls down once and someone helps him up. He and Aaron Scott are still arguing, but they're sharing a bottle. Scott takes a swig, wipes his mouth, and swings at Riley, who staggers off. You fellows stay here 25 minutes until I get back with my gun, Riley says. The boys laugh. Someone tells him, We won't stay up for you, Riley. A music jam starts up not too far off down the holler. Fiddles start to talk. A harmonica joins in. A banjo twangs. The air changes slightly, feels electric, and someone notes, might rain yet.
Thank you. And really quick, this is a plug for Kate Barrett, who is so amazing and helpful all the time. Thank you. And for the book. <laughs> and, and for the book project. It rocks. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> is, uh, is Sam DeLeo here? Okay, good. I haven't met you yet. So the only thing I know about Sam DeLeo is um, the very little bit that uh, he emailed me. Um, so I apologize I don't have a longer introduction for you. But Sam DeLeo has uh, published poetry and has had two plays produced, has recently finished his novel, As We Used to Sing. Please give a warm welcome to Sam DeLeo. This is a story about a woman I, I used to know named Irene and God rest her soul. And it's called Good Night, Irene. Irene was 83, skinny and had matted short gray hair. She carried a brown paper bag for a purse and she talked to everybody. Irene was obsessive enough to weigh vegetable cans at the grocery store. And not least of all, Irene Reinhardt was horny. <laughs> Honey, why don't you let me give you a massage tonight? You come up and I'll give you a nice massage with baby oil. You can just lay down on the bed and let's order, Irene, I said. I'm hungry. I was in my late 20s. Besides my contract jobs as a furniture mover and a roofer, I worked as Irene's aide, so when my back and hands weren't being tested, my patience was. I took Irene grocery shopping, drove her to the bank and the doctor, and often ate dinner with her. I had just finished a moving job before we arrived at Mary and Lou's Cafe late one summer afternoon. Irene had been walking especially slow while hanging onto my arm, stopping to make comments to the characters who wanted the cafe, which was set in the heart of one of Denver's drunk districts back then. My jeans and T-shirt carried the dust of other people's belongings and the funk of wild buffalo. I'd only eaten a donut since morning, but at least I'd sweat out most of a hangover. To Irene, these dinners functioned as verbal foreplay. I make you feel real nice, honey. Do you want your glass of red wine now, Irene? Oh, you're changing the subject. You got yourself one of those chippies, don't you? You're not going to find a woman like me. As she holstered the crooked finger she'd been pointing at me, I noticed the man drinking coffee in the next booth had tilted his head to better hear us. This kind of reaction was normal. Don't you like me anymore, honey? The man in the next booth glanced back at me. Irene finally ordered and I went to wash up. When I returned, the man was now sitting next to her, and time quickly sped up. You know this fella, sweetheart? The man doesn't look at me when he says this, as if I don't exist. Irene is focused on delivering story. I fed the orphans in Wyoming when we lived with the miners, she says. I was a good woman and chaste. Is this guy taking care of you, honey, the man asks. Sorry, is there a problem, I say. <laughs> this sweet lady tells me she could use a good man and you don't look like you fit the bill. <laughs> Maybe you'd like to prove you're a better man, I say. I think I might just do that, he says. Auditions are out back, I say. Out back it is. <laughs> Let's go, Irene, I say. We'll eat somewhere else. The man and I stand up quickly, ready. 
but I have to help Irene from the booth, put her arm in mine, and walk her out the back door. This is on, I say. Damn right it is, he says. Irene and I managed to shuffle a total of three feet. Let's see how you fare with someone who's not an old woman, the man says. Yeah, let's see how I do against a younger woman. Uh, Irene and I cover maybe another five feet. Right now, buddy, the man yells. Oh, it's on now, I say. And for the whole excruciating walk to the door, the man and I strained to fan the fight flames against a pace determined to drown them. In the parking lot, we mostly just roll around on the ground. Just before a line cook breaks us apart, I get the man in a headlock. I catch a glimpse of Irene in my compact car. Her mouth hangs open in amusement. Her face is lit by the sun's orange glow. She's the sole winner of the afternoon spotlight. That was very evocative. I was there. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Up next, um, we have a novelist. Um, Carrie Esposito is uh, going to read for us an excerpt from her novel uh, set in India. Uh, The novel's called No Way to Fall Off This Earth. Um, And uh, just by way of uh, a little bit of trivia, um, what does Carrie Esposito have in common with J.K. Rowling? Um, uh, Carrie Esposito um, began writing her first novel uh, the the novel that we're about to hear from she began writing it um, on the subway ride to and from work uh, while assistant principal at a middle school in Brooklyn so uh, uh, Carrie has spent most of her adult life on the east coast and now uh, uh, recently moved to Denver with her husband and children Um, please welcome Carrie Esposito. Which, oh, there you're right in the front. Well, I think JD said it all, and I had no idea that I had anything in common with J.K. Rowling, so that's really exciting. <laughs> um, so I'm going to start. This is the first couple of pages of the novel. <clears throat> Hush footsteps were the only sound in the corridor as we walked to the exit of the Delhi airport with the other silent travelers perhaps also dreaming of what they would find on the other side. A burned rubber smell stung my nostrils, but I hoped that somewhere out there was the smell of India I'd always imagined, a mixture of rose water, shampoo, and cardamom that was mama's smell. Zara, my twin sister, stalked ahead of me. Baba was a few feet in front of me too, his back and arms stiff. Neither one turned around to make sure I was there, but I continued forward, keeping them in sight. It was three in the morning, which meant it was late afternoon the day before back home in Brooklyn. I blinked in the dim light, realizing some of the hours that had passed since Mama died one week ago were lost in the dark sky over the ocean, but I didn't know if I wanted those hours back. I didn't know what I would hold on to, or what I would let go in this country that had always belonged to Mama's pictures and stories. We came out into a room where the shouts of the waiting crowd exploded into the silence. I swiped at my ears, the unfamiliar pressure making the sound seem so far away, 
even though people were standing everywhere, like I'd never seen, even in Brooklyn. The smell of sweat and body odor was like the deepest underground subway tracks in summer. I looked at Zara, and her forehead was wrinkled in disgust. With his back to us, Baba turned his head from side to side. I tried to imagine what it felt like to be him, arriving in a country he hadn't seen in 14 years, since just before we were born. Even if I could see his eyes, I knew I wouldn't be able to tell. As we walked, a blur of brown faces leaned in from behind ropes and reached out their hands, as if wanting to catch us in their grip. I rushed away from their spidery fingers and clattering voices, speaking in languages I couldn't understand, to where Zara stood with her backpack shoved up against the glass doors that led out of the airport. Baba placed his hand on the door above her head and pushed. She stumbled forward. I'm not going to this dirty place where only dirty people like you would want to go. Baba looked away from her. Coward, she whispered under her breath. He kicked the door fully open and went outside, limping from the weight of his suitcase. My backpack burned into my shoulders. Zara, come on, we have to give him a chance. She crossed her arms. Why should we? Mama used to put Baba's dinners, wrapped in a brown paper bag, into his hands when he was on his way out the door to work. She always held his fingers a second. And then he'd go and she'd get ready to leave for her own night shift. Because he's our father, he's what we have. Zara snorted. Baba was standing on the sidewalk, glancing at us, then looking away. Next to him, a man in a green uniform and blue hat, with a giant gun slung over his shoulder, stared ahead with blank eyes. I moved closer to Zara. Thank you, Carrie. Um, I wanted to mention also, Carrie has a Carrie has a great author website. If you're if you're um, still getting getting yours set up, it's a good one to look at. Um, just go to the Google and search for Carrie Esposito writer. We have a few more readers for you, and um, by the strangest coincidence, I believe they're all poets. On on the on the back side of this reading, all poets, um, all poets from, uh, in fact, who I believe are taking, all taking, took, taking took Mark Doty's class. Took? Is it still happening? Took. <laughs> took Mark Doty's class this week. Um, um, I want to just uh, start us off with a poem called, uh, that you've all heard a hundred times, but it's called Life Goal Number 31. When I finally jello Russell Barbara Walters, I'll hit her hard, I will not falter. I'll pile drive and somersault her. I'll eat the lunch of Barbara Walters. Thanks. Okay, out of the gate, we have... A, a fine poet whose poetry I have not heard yet, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, Lauren Rusk uh, teaches as, a, as an adjunct at, of all places, Stanford University. And she's writing her second book of poems. Um, at various other times, she's worked as a preschool teacher, a barmaid at a tavern in Texas called The Linger Inn, <laughs> and a, as a switchboard operator, uh, which she describes as a surprisingly 
sensuous occupation, which is sadly obsolete. Please give a warm welcome to Lauren Rusk. Thank you. Yeah, most things are a little short. good is this good oh that's good yeah wow <laughs> um, I'm gonna read a, a prose poem I wrote at another workshop by given by Mark Doty a few years ago um, actually in uh, it incorporates all the exercises he gave us into this one my only prose poem which maybe will make a nice transition from the the prose. Um, it's a poem about the effects of having a distant then absent father, and it has a couple of arcane references. Um, as a child, I lived in a tenement in Boston, which had one of the few remaining ice boxes. Uh, for the young people here, um, th- that the ice box was a precursor to the fridge. Um, it's a large box with a large chunk of ice (laughs) in it that a man brings you every week. Um, There are also allusions to a couple of TV reruns from the 50s. And the poem is in two parts. Meteorology on St. Batolph Street, a child's primer. Not the ice man, but the ice itself comes in a gust when I'm three, grappled up the last flight and around the banister. The huge chunk resides in a white vault outside our door. Back from the bathroom by myself, I dawdle by the icebox, lever it open, and stand there facing, trying to know the cloudy, inscrutable block. Oh, the smell of it, clean and cold as a man's suit jacket in from the snow. Even when I'm in our room, I know it's melting. At first, don't touch, you'll stick but soon a valley dips under my finger. Can my hand really be that hot? When little Jay Gulbrand comes to play, alligators in the skylight make me make them make us shriek and shriek. The body of the ice recedes, losing its square-cornered shoulder, leaving behind the not-even frigid air, the smell of scouring powder. Gouges from the ice man's tongs grow shallow, healing over like watery eyes unable to look. The jacket from the cold is supposed to come with presents. It's supposed to settle into the big chair, not to back away into the hall. To where? Your father's room, number 11, its unknockable door. If it could, the ice would say, I cannot keep on creating perfect weather. Your small hand, a star, itself gouged with four small stars, terrifies me, sears me. The cloud-colored boxy animal who gives us wool lives in the cold, shies away from human touch, jumps the fence and hunkers down, shielded in its grease, growing in its confusion, dingy and stale. 
rough wool, smooth wool, shouldering out the door. Does my body become the man who melted away? He's a tall, large man, as I have become tall and large. I overhear him talking to my mother before he goes out. Does he speak to me other than to say I don't want any? His voice, is it deep? Trying to know the starry block is like facing a slick, towering ship which wants nothing and offers nothing but blankness and yet is the utter bass note that cannot but call forth desire. This is the second part. Forgot to say it's in two parts. The bulky, dark-suited frame of Perry Mason, the advocate who never gives in and never raises his sternum stirring voice, is untouchable too. But his eyes, very like the eyes of my father, large, dark, and slightly protruding, Perry Mason's eyes in those reruns, those Wednesdays, his eyes hold on to mine. I stay home from sixth grade for him, and no, please, not for Della Street. Her I feel for and despise, always waiting, steno pad at the ready, dressed for dinner with him just in case, idling at home with a stomach ache. I wait for Perry at four o'clock, and how can I tell whom I love more? Lucy at 11, flame-headed Lucy at the helm of her crazy house, lips painted outside the lines, angling for a role in her pop-eyed husband's nightclub act, any role, even a horse, as manic in her schemes as I am frozen in those Wednesdays, nearly bursting from the 50s shirtwaist, from the round-cornered picture tube, flubbing up, undiminished but I want to be Ethel, the wisecracking sidekick, alto, autumnal, hands on her hips, standing at a slight remove from the chaos. It isn't true. It's spring I want. I want to be spring, to burst the last skin of ice on the grass with both bare feet, spring, the clown-colored daughter, her whole three-ring show. Thanks. Thank you, Lauren. That was marvelous. That was terrific. Thank you. Um, I always had a crush on Della Street. <laughs> um, I think it was her name. I just always liked her name. Uh, our next poet in our in our lineup of five poets in a row, uh, John Riccio. Um, uh, prior to... Uh, Entering the uh, University of Arizona's MFA program, John uh, Riccio held a series of odd jobs, including baby bib mailer, thin mint cookie impersonator, (laughs) and my personal favorite, shrink wrap advocate. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. John Riccio. Alrighty. Um, I just want to say thank you to Mark and the cohort and the Lighthouse staff for making this a really great week. Um, two poems. 
one short and one that was just generated in Mark's class over the last few days. Rent Boy at Street Fair. A woman sells magnets from her trolley booth. A smoothie cocks traffic. My crown of straws. A statue of liberties you see right through. How did I lose my fear of crowds? By focusing on the ankles in front of me. Dear artist, with the power scooter and fingers eager, I'd let you paint my face, but for the cuts. As for the man in the Ford Explorer hurling hate crimes like ceramics, the street vines told me how you spent the autumn of 82. This poem is called Gainful. After heroin, my year as a bellhop, arms reliable as hotel chlorine. It makes you regal, my brother says, of the uniform smothering my tracks, rivets dotting a wearable sucret. It's funny how I meandered from one strap to another, puller, Porter, the narrower the elevator, the more its buttons consume. Braille's goose pimple pyramid built one cable at a time. I mentioned this to the night manager, some indentured shuttle dialer surveying our empire of the diffused, a magnet for rebounders and red eyes alike. A month in, I tell my caseworker, Pam, always the monosyllables I'm assigned, a signal from the heroin ferry. Some salvages are a waste of tarnish. Life's composed of those who tip you with the crisp money. Money so crisp you hear the Lincoln Memorial crinkling with your jacket's first frost. And those who tip you in singles the color of dredged mint, ones clawed from wallets, stray dimes swimming the maid's mop water, the lobby's condensation like ambrosia with a blown gasket. And withdrawal, Pam asks. I tell her it's the lunch canceled by fax, the sprinklers, typography, trickling atop the water cooler's drought, stationary handwriting so faint you mistake it for a specter's scratch. After heroin, the suitcase of sock holes, convention goers and carts, the 4 a.m. checkout king, may his fawning numb you the opposite of corrosion. Thank you. Did you say wearable sucrets? Wearable, yeah. I like, I like that. I like that.
Um, Tiffany Isaacs is not here, is that correct? None of you are Tiffany Isaacs. Okay, I didn't think so. Um, up next, a, a, a fine, fine um, poet, a uh, poet who, whose book I have read and reread. Um, uh, just She has more than one book, but I've only read and reread one of her books, uh, her most recent book, The Mysteries. Um, Catherine Bass, um, Catherine T.S. Bass, as I like to call her. Um, because that's my name. Yeah, yeah. She is a special friend, but, but that is her name. Um, Catherine, <laughs> Catherine Bass just, just, just quit her job in advertising. Yay. For a uh, for a job in corporate marketing. <laughs> Her recent honors um, include residencies at Brush Creek Ranch and Gentel. Um, and did I mention the name of her book that I like so much? It's called The Mysteries. It's a it, uh, hopefully it's on sale over there. It's 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 very much worth looking. at. Okay, it's on sale in the trunk of her car. Uh, and uh, as a, just a point, uh, just a, a sort of a, a recent history thing. Last year, Catherine learned um, that surfing makes her giggle. <laughs> Please give a warm welcome to Catherine T.S. Bass. Hi. How is everybody? Yeah. Good. It's true that surfing makes me giggle. I didn't know that it was going to make me giggle. I, it was very hard. It, it's not for the weak. And that rash guard, you really need the rash guard, just if you ever want to try it. And you're going to get a rash anyway. But, you know, it helps. Uh, but what I found is that the one time I really got up, really got up, I, I, I felt this funny feeling, like down here. It was a weird feeling. It could have been like an intestinal issue. I don't know. <laughs> But then it started to just kind of come out, up, 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 and then I opened my mouth and it turned out to be a giggle. So that's one of the best things that can happen when you don't know what's going to come out. So I, I feel pretty good. So I'm going to read an, a new poem that is kind of, it's, it's an old poem, not old, but, you know, of a certain age, maybe a couple months. Um, but uh, Mark Doty's workshop, which was so wonderful, was all about kind of making your work bigger, making more room in your work for more things to happen. And it was such a helpful workshop. I think we all had a really wonderful experience, and I appreciate so much that Lighthouse invests in bringing people like Mark Doty here. Um, So yay for that. Um, So this poem used to be called Meditations on a Theme, and maybe now it's called Poem for Creek and Stone. And if you love animals, you might cry. So get yourself a tissue whatever, get your favorite sleeve out. Um, so uh, these, this is one long poem. It's the longest poem I ever wrote, but I don't write long poems, so don't be frightened. And <laughs> it has a lot of these little ellip- ellipses-separated sections. Um, so it might be called Poem for Creek and Stone, and it might be called Meditations on a Theme. It's gr- still growing. The round stone in my chest allows all this is still beautiful. 
a blur of snow falls now since you were lost to us. The river says, keep going. The rocks hold still. Swept up, unwilling, I am here. November sunlight falls thin. The doe guides her fawns toward the creek. Sweet brush and poplar, she urges. My resistance is nothing, snow and white stones. Life will not bring us back again. The you that is gone reminds I was worn all the way through. The you within me stays. Good boy, good stone. I hate that you are swallowed, something I can no longer see, no longer touch, my great knot on the outside. So many grays in this landscape, one starts to see through the red and pink and orange of gray, the green and blue. Sage climbs the hills away, come back. When Jasper died, when Dana died, you I am here, that knot in my throat again. Crouched between jagged horizons, this spot in Wyoming looks west for weather. It might just snow, and wouldn't that be a change? The you within me travels light, no leash, no ache, no spasm. You have returned to me, at least this habit and joy. But what have I passed over? Whitened whiskers and snout, eyes of molten amber, deep as the center of the earth. My whirled one, thick brown fur flecked with apricot, hot tongue unfurling, truly like a slice of ham. Your feast of a shank, your barrel of flesh, the burl I lay my head upon, and drifting with breath, finally sleep. Where are you? who were so much. Oh, beautiful, I feel your spark. Velvet ears sprout from the top of my head, and maybe it is the rock that travels, the river that holds still. I carry you with me, brindled armor of instant gladness. The heaviness of losing you keeps dropping all the way through me. This, this is the story I can't stop telling myself. Where to go from here? A list of the lost, my oldest friend, my oldest dog, then my only. Before Dana died, I knew, I heard it in her voice. I can come, I said, navigating the rush a thousand miles away. Why didn't I? Is her no enough? Now there is only me. I straddled the log by the creek as she and I sat a fence in Indiana, balancing together at the edge of sixth grade. Long-gone insects marked this wood for their own, with their own wormy hieroglyphs. I can't read. Sunflowers and goldfinches bloomed the day we put Jasper down. My only ever alpha, Rin Tin Tin, whose 15 years dutifully marked my life's perimeters. I don't want to go, he told us. Defiant and doped up, he walked away, stood guard, the slope of his hindquarters listing. He leaned in to the old clothesline even. Anything to not lie down. Don't make me go. And you, you said it too. I don't want to go. 
but gentle, a kind of apology in my cool office. You knew the time as well as we, better. And it was September again, goldfinches and sunflowers and your pile of fur like roadkill, like a stranger covered with our tears on the cement patio. Come back. The heaviness of losing keeps going. It's the river, the creek, and maybe stones are lucky to be left behind. You can never be any more now than what we carry. And yes, that is so much. And no, it's not enough. Enough is a promise, a promise with a crack. I want it. I want everything. I want everything back. This might be where the snow begins. Thank you, Kevin. That was beautiful. Um, your, your description of surfing reminded me of uh, the story of the first time I, uh, my daughter threw up on me. <laughs> um, she, was, she was just a baby. She was um, two or three. Um, and I came into her room and she was crying because she was feeling... Uh, feeling sick and just feeling terrible and she was weeping and I bent down and I scooped her up and I said, what's wrong? And I, I picked her up in my arms and she was crying against my neck and suddenly I felt this <laughs> warm flow on my back. Um, I'm sure many of you have experienced that feeling. Um, and she started laughing. Because you do, right? Because after you throw up, you feel much better, right? And she just started laughing. And she said, Oh, Daddy, I coughed up butterflies. (laughs) I don't know. You reminded me of that. Not your story, not the poem. You just... Um, Our next next reader is... is, um, a practitioner of, of not the oldest profession, but certainly the best profession. Um, Julie Askerens. Askerens? Julie Askerens teaches um, English language development, American lit, and newspaper at Centaurus High School in Lafayette. And I believe she's a poet too. So she's even better. Please, warm welcome for Julie Askerens. Hi, everybody. Um, One thing I did not put on there is, today is my birthday. And um, I can't think of a better way to spend a week than with Mark Doty and the writers in in our writing group. It was absolutely fantastic. So thank you to everyone involved. Um, I'm going to read two pieces. One piece is actually prose, which is new for me. and then a poem. The prose will inform the poems, so we'll just slide from one into the other. And tomorrow is Father's Day, so these are both in honor of my father. Running. He runs down the hall toward the fire door. In the last several weeks since he came here to live, he's lost more than 10 pounds. His jeans low ride. 
with depends peeking over the top. Normally frail as he had become, he shuffles along. But a woman is pressing the bar on the fire door. It screams. He runs toward her shouting, Hey! My brother and I don't know if he's running to stop her or to help her escape. My father's hands are purple from all his pounding on the door to be let out. There are two nurses on duty, or LPNs. One runs into the hallway just as another man stands from his wheelchair in his continuing attempt to enter a room that is not his. He topples to the floor and cuts his arm. The second nurse runs to the phone to call 911. They can't pick him up until someone verifies that they didn't push him. The blood runs down his arm. His face has no affect, no, red, no registration of pain or people. My brother runs after Dad and takes his elbow, leading him back. The alarm wails. There are about 15 people sitting just the other side of, the, of columns, demarcating the common area. They watch reruns of a crackling fire on the big screen TV. As my father enters, one man growls at him. Dad growls back. He touches a woman on the arm gently. She snatches her arm away and shouts, Don't touch me! I turn to the nurse and tell her I'm amazed. She says it's just her job. Asks if we're ready to leave. I feel bad for making demands of her, but don't know the code to let us out. Dad follows us to the memory unit door. The alarm's still sobbing. It's Thanksgiving. And this is, um, this was also, I worked on this after, um, after the workshop we were in and also working on um, our being in Mark's um, elegy class. This is called Requiem at a Loss. From my father, Father's Day 2014. One. God damn it, he says, Jesus Christ! Then silence, mostly. Sometimes, no, or oh. Then maybe it's, it's. Two. I wonder. Without words, what shapes thought? Tell me moss rocks, glaciered bays, gouged trunks of trees. Talking, tied, moon wounded, we turmoil, never moving through. Unable to clank clay from the spade, agape as a bell or elevator shaft, more than silent, snoring drafts, shattered timbers, Flats and trowels tossed into a truck. We are shucked, splayed, unkerneled husks tumbled together, raked, naked in our stopped-up prayers. One. But without words, without lines to describe the pitch and hiss of this, my father pounds and shoves Sniffs flowers, hugs and spits, roaring a silent fire, quietly fighting the full boil, a greening bulb unable to unfreeze its outer skin of glass until at last.
Thank you, Julie. Thanks for um, reading for the fathers. Oh, we have one la- final reader tonight. Um, also, a uh, somebody who has uh, ably run the Colorado Poets Out Loud competition um, for, I think she did it for three years, five years, before Andrea picked it up. Um, Colleen Zubik is... Um, is a, another great poet and was uh, in um, Mark Doty's class. Uh, I, I think she has some elegies for us as well. Um, she wanted to, to share uh, her uh, by way of her connection to this place that uh, at one point in her life she was in fact stranded on a lighthouse island for three days. Um, sadly, not this lighthouse, but um, I think it shaped her and got her ready for this moment. Um, please give a warm welcome to our, our last reader and a fine poet, Kelleen Zubik. Thank you, J.D., and thank you, everybody, for still being here. I was revisiting that school moment, last name Zubik, Z-U, always the last in the classroom by alphabetical order, the last to read, so it's really nice to see faces. And, uh, you know, just to chime in, um, there were Zen meat cutters all in Mark Doty's um, workshop, so uh, that was wonderful, and um, taken many workshops here at Lighthouse, too, so building that community is a great thing that happens here. So I wanted to thank all you guys. Really enjoyed being with you. About, um, just about over four years ago, I left my job and I started my own business and I work out of my house. And my husband gave me with great ceremony a magnet with this happy-looking 50s housewife that says, drinking coffee and slacking off is all about what I do, or something like that. So this poem is called Housewife Ritual, and he doesn't know the half of it. (laughs) Housewife Ritual. It must have been the circumscribed aspect of the sunlight, approachable, laid out in distortion from the window on the pile, the creamy den rug, a possibility of personal epicenter of just now that led to such solitary extravagance in which inhabiting a patch of sun became a practice that starts on the darker edge Swift lift of shirt or gown and shirk of anything under, the mail of colder air, roughing skin, then stepping in, not testing, but outstretched, full measure, then sinking knees to chest, soaking in a temporary tub of wonderment where she can weave her hands through the moody air, lean back and let the glowing, dazzling countenance wash her hair. So that's what I do all day. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we have been talking a lot about elegies, and many good elegies came out of the Doty Workshop. Um, and um, I would like to read what I thought afterwards. Hey, this is more like a pre-elegy. So a pre-elegy. It's called Reliquary. 
I cannot see being generous with my mother's body, though it is failing and will need me. My mother's breasts had funnel marks and hung. Minis, she called them, those dugs she was forever scooping into two small bras. As a girl, I I stored her whole body, the inky mole in her underarm, darker down at her jawline and lip, even her legs' intricate bedlam of varicose veins. Nothing can be soft any more now that I've inherited this dilemma, to clean without hope for dignity, to care without possibility of love, to rail without probability for change. Although I know my mother could be beautiful in pictures for parties. Now against the current of biweekly phone calls, mother says, I never told you this, and quick, plain as a recipe, relates how once, while I was waiting to be taken shopping, she shut her door, quickly masturbated on top of the made bed. Why this of all? Could I have seen the tell, her flushed chest, and is it possible that I never interrupted, caught my parents when they were fixed on themselves, blind to me? Whether sad or angry at losing the upper hand to age and distance, my mother knew how to get my attention and quiet. Maybe this is the thing a daughter needs to know to harden her for the end. It's possible a mother hates to lose her body to function, to birth and feeding and sex, tidying up, smoothing down. Maybe before surrendering to my care, she needed me to know she could forget me for pleasure. So when I clean diligently between her thighs, I will never only think of her tearing open for me, but I'll also think of my mother, Kathleen, engendering pleasure, secret and central to the life of her. Thank you. That was stirring. Thank you. Um, one one last hand for the great readers tonight. You guys, you guys were terrific. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.